Hi, I'm Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical advice and encouragement to help you with your writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you can also find out about the Creative Writers Toolbelt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. One of the most popular genres for fiction writers is the murder mystery or police procedural. But this is also a genre where writers can get things wrong. And the problem with that is not just that we want to be as accurate as we can in our work. It's also that wrong details and mistakes in our research and subsequent writing can alienate readers who know what should be happening. The police procedural contains a lot of well, procedure. And so this episode is devoted to getting as much of that right as possible. And to help me navigate this subject, I have been joined by the crime writer, Wendy H. Jones. And together, Wendy and I interrogated Patrick O'Donnell, otherwise known as Sergeant O'Donnell, a serving officer with 25 years of experience in a large metropolitan police department in the US. Wendy and I asked Patrick about a range of challenging situations that police officers have to face, and that writers may wish to present in their stories. And these situations include how do police officers respond to a shooting and a homicide? What is the arrest and subsequent court process? What happens in a hostage situation? How do law enforcement officials work together to get the truth from suspects? And what are the things that writers are most likely to get wrong in this whole area? Now, if you find this interview interesting, you may want to find out more about Patrick's experiences and how he can help writers and about his books, which include the two volume series of reference guides, Cops and Writers. The second volume is just out now and you can find out all about that by going to his website, which is www.copsandwriters.com. This was a fascinating, if occasionally gruesome conversation. And I should warn you now that I have added the explicit tag to this episode as there's a little bit of language involved in a couple of the stories that Patrick tells us during the course of the interview. But I hope you do find this conversation interesting. Here it is. Patrick, do you want to introduce yourself to us briefly? Okay, sure. Uh, Well, my name is Patrick O'Donnell. I prefer not to say where I work right now, specifically. I can retire in three months. So I have almost 25 years experience. The department I work for is a department of about 1,800 members, and we police a city of about 600,000. Okay. Consistently, this city is within the top 10, well, we have like the last 10 years, we're in the top 10 most violent cities to live in. Okay. So as a police, I'm a sergeant, so I'm the supervisor, and I'm on the street every day supervising the cops that are um, taking the assignments and doing whatever that they're doing. So that's my position. That's my job. I've done a variety of things through my career. The only thing I haven't handled is a plane crash. And I hope I don't have to. Let's, but. let's hope you don't have, have to yeah, do that. But other than that, I've done just about all the other stuff. I'm also a published writer. I've published four books. And the fifth one is at the editor right now. The last book was The Police Procedural for okay. Right. Okay, thank you. Um, Wendy, would you like to introduce yourself? To- well, I'm, I write as Wendy H. Jones. Um, the H is frightfully important uh, if you look me up anywhere because there's another writer who writes totally different things to me who doesn't have the H in the middle. So it's Wendy H. Jones. I write police procedurals, 
comic mysteries, young adult mysteries, children's picture books and books for writers. I'm also the president of the Scottish Association of Writers. Okay, thank you to both of you. Patrick, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your background. You said you say you've worked 25 years as a serving officer. So can you tell us a little bit more to start with about the kinds of things that you've done and your career? Okay, sounds good. Um, first, I would like to read a disclaimer, if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, sure. Um, that's just, I do not officially represent any specific police or law enforcement agency and do not intend for any of this conversation to be legal advice. Fair if you enough. need a lawyer, get one. <laughs> um, well, my name is Patrick O'Donnell. I'm a police sergeant in a major metropolitan police force. I was appointed to the police academy January 16, 1995. I'll be eligible to retire in January 16, 2020. So it's around the bend. And I do intend on <laughs> leaving happily from the job. Not that I hate the job, not that I dread it, but it's just time. Sure, sure. Okay. Now, Wendy, I know some of this advice is going to be particularly useful for you because I believe that you are currently working on a project where you have characters from a police force in Scotland and a police force in the US. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I'm writing a book which is set in Dundee in New Orleans at the moment because, of course, Dundee's in Scotland and New Orleans is in uh, Louisiana, so they're nice and close to each other, you know. Oh, absolutely. I, I need to uh, – the, the team, the police forces are going to be working together, so it's coming really ha- useful here. So I want to know, what do you look for when you arrive at the scene of a crime, and especially a homicide? I'm thinking of clues and indications of what has happened and who might have done it. Well, when it comes to homicides and a lot of other crimes, sometimes you don't need Sherlock Holmes to figure it out. You know, <laughs> the the first homicide I responded to was a police officer. I'm with my field training officer, and we get called to a stabbing. I was working the night to eight in one of the roughest areas of the city, and we're going the red lights and siren, and we were uh, about a block away. So you usually cut the siren, you know, way before that because you don't want to spook anybody that's you know still maybe in the area, or if there's a bad guy like right there, you don't want to give away everything right away that you're there. I jump out of the, I was on a police wagon. I jump out of the passenger side. And as we were arriving on the scene, the dispatcher gave us a description of the suspect. It was a black male, early twenties, wearing a white t-shirt, black jeans, armed with a long butcher knife. And I'm like, okay, well, I jump out of the van and sure enough, here comes this guy running at me with a butcher knife. Just the white t-shirt was now covered in blood. And I'm like, oh boy. So I drew my weapon. I ordered him to drop the knife. He did. And I'm like, turn around, put your hands behind your back. He did. Handcuffed him up. And he wouldn't shut up about how he stabbed this guy. And we're like, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, first of all, I almost had to shoot and kill this guy. And two, we're going to a homicide. And this is how easy it is to solve. (laughs) (laughs) It's nothing like TV. Damn, what's going on here? So, to make a long story short, you know, he was placed into custody. Eventually, homicide detectives showed up. It's a crime scene. They processed the crime scene. There was witnesses. You have to, you know, gather and interview the witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. But the crime was more or less solved immediately. And sometimes it, it simply is that simple. 
it, not every homicide is like that, obviously. But as far as when you pull up to a scene, I'm a sergeant, so if there's any kind of shooting or stabbing or a dead body, I have to respond. And so what, from my eyes, the first and foremost is scene safety. So when I hear, you know, like a, the last shooting that I had where I was the supervisor in charge, I was like three blocks away. I could hear the gunfire. It was noon on a Sunday. I'm like, really? Nothing's sacred anymore. So I uh, started going to it, and a couple of other cops got there at the same time. There was a subject that was shot multiple times inside of a car. So the first thing on my mind is, is the shooter still in the area? Mm. Because now we're vulnerable because everybody's eyes are on this guy who just got shot. So the first thing in my head is, okay, is the shooter still around? So I have officers check the area to make sure that the person who just shot and killed this guy isn't in the area. And so, you know, there's going to be fire department responding, medics, all that kind of stuff. And I want to make sure it's a, a secure and safe scene for them. So what happened was I had a couple of officers, you know, check the area for uh, potential threats. At the same time, there were a couple of witnesses that actually stuck around. That doesn't always happen. And your best witness is the person who usually called, who called 911. So you definitely want to get a hold of that person. Mm. Usually they're on the scene, not always, because that's going to be one of your best witnesses and your best interviews to, in an attempt to solve the crime. So what happens then is you start putting up the yellow police tape. Um, once you, again, once you know the scene is safe and medics have come and they start working on your victim, that's when you can start locking down your scene. And for a big scene like this, and it was in the middle of a street, so you have to block traffic, you have to look for casings. You know, it was an obvious shooting. Mm. And one of the uh, witnesses told us he had a gun also, but right before we got there, somebody on the street that saw the shooting took the gun, he stole it, that was on the dead guy's lap. So, and then another witness comes along and says, hey, the guy who shot this guy just ran into that house, and it was like a half a block away. So now I have another situation I have to handle. So I ask for more resources, which is more cops. And while this is going on, again, I do have witnesses, and I have them in patrol cars speaking with police officers, just making sure that they're not going to wander off somewhere, because homicide detectives are definitely going to want to talk to them. Mm -hmm. So what happens then is what happened with this scene was I gathered up a few cops and we went to this house and we're going up the stairs and there was a blood trail going up the stairs. And we're like, oh, well, maybe the victim got a couple of shots off before he died. So we're going up the stairs and you don't even go up the stairs until you take a position to cover. And you, the best case scenario is to have the person surrender and come to you. That way nobody gets hurt. It's just the best case scenario. And we announce ourselves, you know, police, police, you know, please come down, hands in the air. And nothing happened. So slowly but surely, we, um, we start going up the stairs. And there's three little kids ranging from like nine years old to six years old. And we're all looking at each other like, are you by yourself? And they're like, yeah. Like, where's your mom? 
And he's like, well, she's down the street because all the stuff that's going on. I'm like, great. So I said, where'd the blood come from? And this girl, and this kid cut his his toe. So that's where the blood came from. So it had nothing to do with the shooting. <laughs> it had nothing to do with, you know, the oh, bad guy man. coming into this house. So I'm like, well, clear the attic just in case. So we go up into the attic, and there's a little baby, a six-month-old baby in a crib. And it, it was just, and this upper apartment had no electricity and no plumbing. And we're all looking at each other like, this poor baby, you know, mom just like left it. So now I have to call child protective services. Now, you know, I've got a homicide, but now I've got all this other stuff too. And, you know, I can't ignore it. Hmm. So, so I go back down to the homicide. Another sergeant was running that scene by, by then more personnel showed up. What happens again, like I said, you put up the yellow crime scene tape, you do an outer perimeter and that's to make sure nobody trounces through, disturbs any type of evidence that may, be, may have been left behind. And there's an inner perimeter. A lot of times that's put up with red police tape. Some, some people refer to it as the hot zone. So that's why it's red. Um, the inner perimeter is the direct crime scene. My, the yellow tape was up almost a block and a half in each direction of where the crime was committed. As far as the inner perimeter goes, it was the immediate area of where you have the dead body, the IE shooting scene, the car that was all shot up. Hmm. And we did retrieve some casings from what, what appeared to be whoever shot and killed this person. There's brass casings in the middle of the street. So, of course, those will be photographed and those will be analyzed later. So you look for the obvious whenever you come to a crime scene. Like I said, sometimes you don't need Sherlock Holmes to figure it out or solve the case. Uh, Wendy, have you got any follow-up questions to that yeah. at all? I mean, it would be great if that happened all the time, that people just, well, you know, you got them that easily, but I'm sure there are times when it's a lot more tricky than that. Mm. But, you know, it's sometimes, you know, you can't fix stupid, as they say, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all starts with a good crime scene, yeah. And a good investigation. You know, what you see on TV or movies or reading books is, you know, there's a homicide, say a shooting. And presto, you know, you have a team of homicide detectives that show up out of nowhere before you, the cops even get there. Yeah. But that's pure fiction because if there's, most of these things start out as a shots fired call and then it gets upgraded maybe to a shooting. And. If it's a shots fired, the police officers go to it. If it's a shooting, or if there's more than one call and it sounds like it's going to be a shooting, I go along. The sergeant goes along also. Mm. And we secure the scene, and we let the dispatcher know, hey, we have a victim. You know, We say it's PNB, which is pulseless non-breathing. The fire department has done their best. They tried to save him or her. And the person perished. Hmm. So from there, you secure the scene. You start, again, if you have witnesses, you separate them. And you do a preliminary interview. More or less, what did you see? What happened? A little bit about you. What's your name? Your date of birth? Where do you live? What's your phone number? You start, And then you start running them for any type of criminal background. If they're wanted. You know, if they have serious warrants. Um those kinds of things. Hmm. So 
a lot of work goes into that scene before a detective even gets there. Sure. Now, you've talked a little bit about suspects there, some of whom just turn up in front of you and, and some maybe are a little bit harder to track down. When you're talking to somebody who, who might be a suspect and you may have arrested, you know, you may have charged them or you may not, is there anything in their behaviour that indicates to you innocence or guilt? Yeah, a lot of that depends on what kind of record they have. If they've been through the criminal justice system already, they're very usually they're very stoic and you know right away I don't want to talk to you, I want a lawyer. Yeah. You know, because they've been through the system a few zillion times. I mean, I can honestly say in 25 years when when I've responded to literally hundreds of homicides and probably, oh God, over 500, 600 shootings probably in my career, I could probably count on one hand how many people this is their first rodeo. You know, there's some type of criminal behavior before this. There are crimes of passion, like what I talked about with Mm. the girl with the barbecue fork. But even her, she'd never been arrested for anything as serious as homicide, but she's been arrested a bunch of times. Mm. This is nothing new. So if the more acquainted you are with the criminal justice system, probably a little cooler you're going to be and they're pretty calm it's kind of shocking and you know the people who are small-time criminals or have never committed a crime a lot of times they're very boisterous they're they're very i didn't do it you know i if i heard swear to god i don't know how many times i'm like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I swear to God, I didn't kill this person. And I'm just like, let's leave God out of this, please. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, let's just do that. Um, they're over the top with that. There are body cues and facial cues. You know, it's. I took a course one time. This is a gal who is a consultant for the FBI and some other law enforcement agencies. She owns a company called Eyes for Lies. And it's deceit recognition. Hmm. She's a deceit recognition expert. And it's amazing how people, they even if they're lying, they want to tell the truth. Because I've had people tell me something like, yes, and they're nodding their head, no, at the same time. <laughs> it's like, no, I wasn't there, and they're nodding their head, yes. <laughs> okay, you're, telling, you're saying something, but your body's telling me something completely different. You know, so you get that. Um, and as far as trying to get a confession, you know, the police officer that's on the street, a lot of it starts with them. If they're an asshole to this person, I mean, of course, you have somebody that was just killed, and you don't want to become best friends with this person who just did. But if you're going to be a complete asshole to this person and not treat them nicely, they're not. You're making the detective's job a hundred times harder. Hmm. So you're not kissing their butts, but you're not going. You have to put your personal feelings aside. Sure. And you know, being professional is the best way to go. You know, kind of be stoic, but don't go out of your way to make things difficult. Because, like I said, now. You may just let you made uh, life much more difficult for the detective who is going to be sitting down with this person literally for hours, interrogating them, getting a confession. Okay, Wendy, you're next. Um, you've already alluded to this a bit. You know, in the television, in books, we often get it wrong. Now, bear in mind, I'm Scottish, so we've got one set of law and police, and you've got another. And um, what do you find in books that 
the authors tend to get wrong? What's the biggest thing they tend to get wrong? Well, there's a number of things. Uh, the things that jump out at me is rank structure. Yeah. Um, you see it in movies, you see it in TV, you see it in books, where a police officer is the person that's you know on the street. They're the ones who are taking assignments. They're the ones who are the first responders. You know, they could be going to a fire. They could be going to a shooting. They should. They could be going to a suicide. They be, they could be going to a barking dog trouble, a neighbor problem, a person overdosing on heroin. That could all be one day. Yeah. You know, so they're the first responders. They set the stage. Sergeants is what I am. I'm the supervisor. You know, yeah. I'm I'm required to go to all kinds of stuff. I get to go to any kind of dead body any kind of business robbery, um, overdoses, suicides, hostage situations, um, hazmat situations, critical missings, child abuses, sexual assaults, uh, gas leaks, fatal serious vehicle accidents, explosions, um, fires. And I've done all of those multiple times. So, but the majority of the personnel on the scene are going to be police officers. Yeah. And you might have one or two sergeants, and if it's a homicide, you're probably going to have a lieutenant from the detective bureau and a sergeant, if there is one, from the yeah. detective bureau. I'm on the patrol side. I'm in the patrol bureau. Then there's the detective bureau, the investigators. Yeah. So then you might have some forensic people that will show up. Yeah. So that's... That's one thing that, you know, I get that gets wrong a lot of times. Like I, like I alluded to before, you know, you have a homicide, then all of a sudden there's only like one or two cops there and they have sergeant stripes on their arms and everybody's a sergeant. And I'm like, no, not everybody's a sergeant. <laughs> you need cops too. And these detectives show up like out of nowhere and they're doing all the work. And it's like, no, they don't do that. You know, <laughs> it depends on the agency also. Like the agency that I work for, if say there's a homicide, you'll have a team of about six to eight detectives, a lieutenant, maybe a captain. I will be there and maybe a sergeant from the detective bureau. And as far as like, say the forensic people come, you at the very most, you might have two, but it's almost always just one person. Now yeah. the detectives on the scene will process the scene you know, they'll talk to the forensic person and say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna, I want DNA off of that. You know, get, try and get fingerprints off of this. Collect some blood over there for that. There are agencies where sometimes you have a homicide and you may only have two or three detectives show up. Hmm. And more of a team of forensic people that will actually document the crime scene and process the crime scene with not a lot of conversation with the detectives, they'll still talk to them. Obviously they'll powwow and they'll kind of confer and say, you know, it would make sense to do this or it would make sense to, you know, take that or analyze, you know, take a sample of this, you know, that type of thing. So it all depends on the sit on the department also. So rank is usually misunderstood. Also, it also, it seems like in a lot of books and movies, detectives are the only people doing police work. They're, they're the ones running down the alleys, shooting people, car chases, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and that's almost never the case. Most detectives, we call them suit and tie detectives, they're the ones who respond to a scene. They're the ones who are interviewing witnesses who will eventually interrogate a suspect or develop a suspect and then interrogate the suspect once that person is apprehended. 
they're also the ones who will go to court and present the case to the to the prosecutor, most likely a district attorney. But there's a lot of other working parts to it that, you know, I guess a real common Hollywood trope and tropes you see in books as well is the lone wolf detective who's breaking all the rules, you know, to go mm-hmm. get the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, if there's very rarely a lone wolf anybody on a department, and if they're breaking all the rules, they're going to get suspended and they're probably going to get fired. You know, there's checks and balances. They have bosses. Detectives aren't just rogues that have no boss. So that's, you know, that's a very common, you know, trope as far as that goes. And it's completely false. Then um, more mistakes that I see is how specialized units are utilized. There was a popular uh, TV show on the SWAT. And they show these SWAT guys running around in tight T-shirts. They all look like they're fitness models. And they're running around solving crimes. SWAT guys never do that. They, they they get called to, you know, like, say, a hostage situation mm. or a barricaded subject, or they execute search warrants. But they're not going to spend hours following leads and going to get bad guys, you know, that way. That's what detectives do. That's what cops do, not SWAT guys. So that's completely off the mark. Or my wife likes all these shows on TV. <laughs> and, yeah, you see the interrogations of some people, you know, they're shoving guns in people's mouths. They're beating the snot out of them, you know, pistol whipping. They're, they're doing this, they're doing that. And all those things would get this case thrown out of court and you would go to jail because almost every interrogation is recorded. Hmm. And the defense attorney gets a copy of that. The person who is representing the person who is accused. So, I mean, you have to be very careful. You know, Miranda's often, you know, you have the right to remain silent, all that is often misused. You know, either they say it in a situation where they don't have to, or they, they're saying it, that, you know, they just meet this person right away. They just start Mirandizing them. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, yeah, there's a plethora of situations that are in books and whatever that are completely false. Hmm. So let's say you have a, a suspect, uh, let's say uh, there was, there's been some kind of violent offense and you want to arrest them. What, mm-hmm. is, what are the steps that you go through? And I, I'm thinking this would be a good question to ask now because of what you said just a moment ago about reading people, their rights and all the rest of it. But um, let's say you've got somebody you think they, they could be a suspect in, in, in a case of a violent offense. What do you do with them? How does it work? Well, there's two different ways you can arrest a person. One is with a valid arrest warrant. What happened was a police officer or a detective conducted an investigation. They presented it to a district attorney, and the DA is like, yes, that's enough for a warrant. There's enough probable cause here for a warrant to go arrest this person for this offense. You know, they, they spoke, if the victim is alive, they spoke with the victim, they spoke with witnesses, they presented, if there's any physical evidence, um, interviews, et cetera, et cetera, that's all presented before the prosecutor, and the prosecutor is like, yeah, and then a judge signs off and says, yep, that's enough to arrest him on, so you go out and seek this person, and most of the time, it's either a police officer that's going to arrest this person, that is 
just on patrol, say if the traffic stop and they run the person and he's got this warrant. Okay, so we're going to arrest this guy on this warrant. So that's one way. The second way is with probable cause. Probable cause is the quantum of evidence that would lead a reasonable police officer to believe that this person committed a crime. So say, you know, you said it's a violent offense. Um, Say a husband and wife were having a disagreement. Things got out of hand. He grabbed a baseball bat and struck her a couple of times over the head. She survived. There were witnesses. He fled the scene, but you talk to the witnesses and you talk to other family members and it's like, hey, you know what? He might be at his mom's house. She lives at, you know, 123 Main Street. Okay. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) So this is all things that have happened with me. And it's like, okay. And sure enough, there's the guy and you arrest him. What happens after that is you arrest him depending on the case. If it's the officer that's handling it, you know, he goes to the police station. Um, he gets booked in. You know, he's handcuffed, obviously. He gets booked in. He goes to a cell. If the officer's going to handle it and do the interview, i.e. interrogation, then they will bring him out, and that's when they start talking to him. Now, with any kind of interrogation, you try to build a rapport with the person. Hi, I'm Sergeant O'Donnell. I'm going to be talking to you today regarding you were arrested for aggravated battery. Then right away, man, I didn't do that shit. What are you talking about? You know, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, 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 I gotcha. Um, well, before we go much further, you know, I have to read you your rights. So that's when you will read them, their constitutional okay. rights. Yep. And it's like, okay, you have the right to remain silent. And you, know, you always read the rights from the same piece of paper. That way a defense attorney could never say, hey, you know, you made a mistake or sometimes, you know, if you say, hey, I do it verbatim, I've got it memorized. They might have you say it in court, and if you screw it up in court, that's just going to discredit you. No, mm-hmm. I have a state of whatever state you live in card that has the Miranda warnings on there, and I read it verbatim, and it is recorded when I read this. So there's no questions or any kind of confusion if I read this person their rights. And a lot of times, like, for Wendy, if you're writing any kind of story, mo- a lot of detectives have a lanyard with their ID. In yeah. It, and they just have the Constitution um, card right in, in the lanyard underneath their um, ID. Nice. I, see a, lot of, I see a lot of them do that. Yeah. So it's always on their person in case they have to interview somebody, you know, that's injured in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, that's, that's a big tool, obviously. Yeah. So what happens, say, if a detective has nothing to do with this case, like I said, then you read them their constitutional rights, and one of a few things might happen. One, they're going to say, I don't want to talk to you. Okay, back to your cell you go. That doesn't mean that you can't interview them at a, another time or have another person interview them. It would be It's amazing how sometimes people just don't gel. Yeah, and there's no specific reason for it. You might look like somebody's ex-wife or ex-husband <laughs> or ex-mother-in-law. You know, who knows? But you bring in a fresh face an hour later, and you bring them in and say, you still advise them their constitutional rights, and they might start singing like a canary. You never know. But once they say, hey, I want to talk to my lawyer, game over. 
now you're done. Now you put them back in their jail cell, and that's the end. Then what happens after that is they'll go down to the county jail. They'll get processed there. Um, since it's a felony, if it's, you know, most violent, something like that is going to be a felony, there'll be a probable cause hearing. They'll see a judge usually that day or the next day, the very latest, and they establish probable cause, which means a judge or a court commissioner will look over your arrest reports and make sure you had enough to arrest this person at, judging by your, um, your police reports. And then from there, there could be a bail hearing. And that's usually about the time they start talking to their defense attorneys. And um, that's when they find out if they can bail out or they can do a signature bond, depending on what kind of um, criminal history they have. They look to see, okay, has this, is this a pattern? Has this guy committed more than one offense? And is it, have they been violent offenses? Does he live in the city? Does he live out of state? Is he a flight risk? Those types of things. Those are all considerations for a bail hearing. So they'll decide if this guy gets bail or not and what the amount is. And if he can bail out, he's given a future court date that he has to show up to. If he doesn't show up for the, the next court date, then there's going to be a warrant out for his arrest. And, then he, and he's gonna has an additional charge of bail jumping. Or if he commits another crime while he's out on bail, that's bail jumping. Because that's one of the conditions of bail is you have to be nice. You can't go out and commit more crimes. <laughs> okay. Um, Wendy, do you want to chip in with one now? Yeah, I want to take it a bit further, really. Once mm. you've arrested them and you want to get them uh, through to, you know, finally being in court and them in front of a jury, you know, what's the process you go through then? It all depends if the person was picked up later. Like, say, the offense occurred today. Yeah. And we picked them up. To, we'll pick him up tonight at his other girlfriend's house. Yeah. And, okay, so the investigation is still ongoing, and it depends on how in-depth the investigation is going to be. Yeah. Um, what happens is if it's not that big of an investigation, like say something like that, it's probably from the time it starts, from the time you're done with all of your reports, inventorying evidence, um, et cetera, et cetera, you're probably 8 to 12 hours. Somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, yeah. So the investigation, a lot of times, are, is already concluded, except for you don't have the body, you don't have the suspect. No, no. So, so you go arrest the person. Yeah. And then the next part of the investigation, obviously, is the interrogation. You know, questioning the prisoner. And, you know, for that, those are all recorded. And then... Um, they're given to the district attorney, and they're also given to the defense attorney, the person who's yeah. going to be representing them. Yeah. So from there, you know, it all depends. It's a case-by-case -case basis. You know, obviously homicides, there's a, a, a lot more work that goes into those. Yeah. You know, let's say um, you could still be working the scene for a day, maybe even two days. Who knows? Mm. So you may arrest the person, and the scene isn't even fully processed yet. Right. So if it's a homicide, obviously it's more serious and the bail is going to be a lot higher or they're just going to be sitting in the county jail until their trial. Yeah. So well, how long does it usually take until trial? That's just a supplementary question. I'm interested. Oh, you know, from them okay. From arrested to, to the actually go to trial, how long can that take? Well, it all depends. Like 
a lot of my answers when people ask me questions about law enforcement, it all depends, props up quite a bit. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it, it all depends if the defense attorney wants to file any motions to suppress evidence, say. You see a lot of this in drug cases. You know, how did this officer get into this person's car and found these illegal drugs? So, like I said before, when they get arrested, there's a probable cause hearing or a preliminary hearing. Then there's going to be a bail hearing, and they're going to have their first appearance before the judge. But if the um, their defense attorney thinks that the case is weak or how the officers ascertain, again, you know, like guns and drug cases are very common for motions hearings, we call them, where the defense attorney will file a motion to suppress a piece of evidence, like, say, a gun or narcotics. And, you know, our our rule book is the United States Constitution. And if the officer or detective didn't go about it the right way, you know, that key piece of evidence could be thrown out. And then the district attorney would be like, without this piece of evidence, I don't have a case. And then the case gets dismissed. Mm-hmm. It, so it, it depends if you're going to have that. And then if it doesn't, they could have an initial hearing where the judge wants to know where everybody is. And more times than not, these cases are uh, disposed of with plea of plea bargains. And that could be, you know, two, three, four months after the offense occurred or the person mm-hmm. was arrested. And that's where, depending on how strong of a case this um, prosecutor thinks he has or how big of a record the suspect <laughs> has, you know, they can try and strike a deal and say, you know what? The max penalty for this offense is five years. I'm okay with one year in prison and four years probation. Yeah. Four years parole. Or or if it's a lesser offense, you know, for forgo any time in prison, 30 days at the House of Corrections or the county jail, and five years probation. Mm-hmm. And Or if it's somebody who doesn't have too extensive of a criminal record they could do deferred prosecution which would mean you admit that you're guilty but the judge has the option and this is with the district attorney's recommendation of showing leniency and hanging it over your head yeah Mm -hmm. you know okay you you play nice for the next five years yeah and then this will be expunged from your record and you know it's done it's over with it's disposed okay yeah. So, there, you know, very rarely does anything go to a jury trial anymore. And there's games that prosecutors and defense attorneys play as far as at the last second. There is those times where it's like, all right, I'm okay with, you know, four years probation or I'm okay with whatever. They agree to it. And then the judge has the final say. Right. He or she says, yeah, Mm. this is appropriate or, you know what, they can say, it's like, no, I don't agree with this. And you already said you're guilty. Now I'm going to give you the max penalty. So Mm. that can happen. It doesn't happen a lot because judges are elected elected officials. So they don't want to go too far off the rails 
as yeah. far as you know mm. that kind of mm. stuff yeah um patrick i want to pick up on one specific thing just from what you said there um is is somebody's previous criminal record is that admissible evidence in court yes yes okay and that usually that usually comes into effect when it comes time for sentencing the uh, prosecutor will say you know patrick o'donnell has lived in you know some town usa for the last six years he was arrested and convicted of four different you know drug charges yeah. and he was arrested for carrying a concealed weapon you know it seems like the pattern is you know mr o'donnell keeps on getting into more and more violent behavior and is arrested for more and more serious and violent offenses and this should be a part of the um the sentence and also the victim of the crime can also has a say in what kind of sentence they can do what is called the victim impact statement they can read it themselves or have the da read it how being a victim of the specific crime has affected their lives affected their families you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so they can they have a voice also okay yeah. um now let's say you're investigating um a crime and you are talking to a suspect so not somebody you've arrested mm-hmm. but they're but they're they could they could have done it they're a suspect what sort of questions would you be asking them and and what sort of evidence would you be looking for in that situation i guess it all depends on how serious the offense is you know <clears throat> if it's a minor like say misdemeanor battery or something like that you start talking to them and you start to tr- attempt to develop a rapport like i said you catch a lot more flies with honey than you do with vinegar <laughs> And you want to be firm, but staying professional is the smartest thing to do. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, you're going to be talking to somebody, but it's like being a good poker player. It's nice to know what's in the other guy's hand Mm. or you have an idea. You know, it's nice to know I've got this evidence. I have these witnesses saying, hey, I saw him doing this at this point in time you give them a chance to either hang themselves or you give them a chance to, you know, it all depends. A lot of times as you're talking to them and they have an idea, you know, many times they'd be like, all right. And then they just shut up. So there's no magic bullet with that. It's all situational, but again, be professional, but 90% of your job is talking to people. Either you're yeah. interviewing a, uh, a victim of a crime or you're talking to somebody who's a suspect, like you said, who you mm. may not have enough to arrest them. But like I said before, you know, you catch a lot more flies with honey than you mm. do with vinegar. Mm. And you just start talking to them. Now you have to be safe about it. If this guy's, you're pretty convinced he did something violent, you know, you don't want him doing something violent to you or one of your fellow officers. Mm. That type of thing. Also, you have to be cognizant, though. So you have to be professional, and you mm. have to use some common sense too. But like I said before, ninety percent of this job is just your mouth, how, how you talk to people. Okay. Yeah. Wendy, do you want to ask one now? 
Yeah, I do. I, this is, I have to say, this is a bit personal, but it's also, I think a lot of people find this. In the States, I've just been there for six weeks, and I, I could not believe how many different police departments there were. I was wondering in Washington, there was, um, there was, you know, the FBI police, the Capitol Police, the normal police, the Sheriff's Department, <laughs> the, the Secret Service. I spoke to them all on one day. And oh, that's I, great. Completely bamboozled, you know. But how do all these organisations work together? For example, you would have, you may have the police service and the sheriff's department. How do they work together? Who takes control when? That's an excellent question. Um, a police department, their um, area, their jurisdiction is the city that they police. Now, I work in a very large city. It's a Class A city where yeah. our jurisdiction is extended beyond our, beyond our city boundaries. Right. Some smaller, they are not. Um, the way it works is, for the most part, to make things simple, if a crime is committed within our city, it's our jurisdiction, and it's ours to handle. We will take care of it. Now, the county sheriff is just that. They're the county sheriff. Their jurisdiction is countywide. Now, sheriff's departments... Some of their primary functions are the courts, where they are the bailiffs in court. They, they provide security for the courts. They yeah. house inmates. They have a county jail. They're responsible for the county jail. When I first started, sheriff's deputies would start in the county jail, and once you had some time, then you could work on the road or work in the airport hmm. and not work inside the jail. Now they have correction officers who aren't fully sworn law enforcement usually that are doing that so there isn't as many sheriff's deputies not not every county does that but quite a few are kind of turning that direction yeah um so think that the county sheriff their primary one of their biggest primary missions is safety and security of the courts and the jail and running the jail right. and if it's, okay. if it's a big city you know the county is there's a big city inside the county like say chicago you know, yeah. that's in Cook County. The Cook County Sheriff's Department is in charge of a gigantic jail and the courts. Mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of moving parts there. They could also yeah. be in charge of the airport. They also have sheriff's deputies that are on patrol on the highways. They take care of the highways. You know, like crashes, um, oh, pulling yeah. over people for speeding, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um... Then there are federal agencies. Uh, let me back up. Then there's state agencies. Like you said, there's Capitol Police. There's Capitol Police in every state, and their function is security of the state capitol and the area around the state capitol. They also do dignitary protection for any of the people working inside the capitol, especially you know high-ranking politicians such as the governor. That's inside there. You know, yeah. you could when he travels, sometimes he has. Capitol Police with them. Yeah. And so it's not usually not a very large organization, but there's Capitol Police. And then, you know, Secret Service, their two functions are dignitary protection. You know, the most well-known would be, you know, the guys running alongside the limo when the president's in there. They're yeah. talking to their sleeves and have the sunglasses on. They also do counterfeiting. They do counterfeit uh, investigations. People, you know, counterfeit money 
it's very anticlimactic. I remember the first time I was called to go um, back up a Secret Service agent for uh, for a um, counterfeiting thing. You know, it's some address in the middle of a horrible neighborhood, and I'm just like, hmm, this is interesting. And all it was is a guy and a gal that had a computer with a printer, and they're printing out money. But obviously, you know, they were all under arrest, but there was nothing dynamic or fun or crazy about it. It's like, yeah, could you take him to the jail for me? Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, that wasn't fun. I thought it'd be a lot cooler. You guys, you're the Secret Service, but oh well, whatever. Um, and then you know you have the FBI. The FBI does work with local police departments on specific things, like say bank robberies. Um, banks are federally insured. Mm. That doesn't mean that they're going to go to every. The FBI is not going to respond to every bank robber you have. No. But no. we do have an FBI task force with our department. You know, it's a big city for um, high. How can I put it? Um, say there's a bank robbery. Most bank robberies are either a note or the the person doing the robbing says, "Give me all the money. I've got a gun in my pocket," even though he probably doesn't. The cashiers are trained to comply with whatever order that this bank robber has to be very non-confrontational. You know, they don't want a big shootout inside their bank. And if the money's insured, it's not worth anybody getting hurt over. So what'll happen is, you know, usually it's a note. You know, the bad guy won't even say anything. And it's really cool when the robber leaves the note behind with their fingerprints on it. Or you know, <laughs> it's, it's very convenient. They're very nice that way. But anyway, um, and I actually had a bank robber. He owed $5,000 to his drug dealer. Otherwise, he was going to get killed. He goes to a bank. He wasn't masked. He wasn't gloved. He, He just said, give me your money. So they gave him money. He paid off his drug dealer. He came back the next day in the same clothes. says, I want to turn myself in. And sure enough, there he was. But at least he didn't have a drug dealer after him anymore. Exactly. He had to pay his debt. <laughs> so, but that was very nice of him to turn himself into us and, you know, no muss, no fuss, no fight, no nothing. <laughs> so, um, but say I have been to bank robberies where people have been shot, where, you know, you have violent um, robbers mm-hmm. who are on a tear, more or less. And those types of cases the FBI will respond to. They're not going to take over. But they're looking to see if there's a pattern or a trend that, say, the next city over or there's a city 100 miles away where, man, this description you know, kind of matches. Hmm. And the way they're doing this, what they're saying, how they're dressed, what kind of weapons they're using, these all match. Hmm. So you know, the FBI might be involved with that. And the FBI is involved also with our um, Sensitive Crimes Division especially anything dealing with human trafficking, Um, any kind of exploitation stuff like that, because many times these things cross state lines. When we start crossing state lines, that's when the FBI's ears start perking up and, you know, they, they, they start to, they start taking a little more aggressive role in the investigation. So that's as far as being a city cop and dealing with FBI agents, that's what you, you deal with. Then there's uh, ATF, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. 
anything dealing with weapons, you know, guns, explosives. They they're tracking all that. Usually, like I said, my city is six hundred thousand people. There's one or two ATF agents that might be there, so they respond to some things, but not a lot. Yeah. Hmm. Oh. I think hopefully that's useful for you, Wendy, when you do your Dundee meets Louisiana. Or Dundee meets New Orleans thing, yeah, absolutely brilliant. I'm hijacking your podcast. No, no, you, no, that's fine. This is why I've got you here because uh, you take an interest in this, um, Patrick. I, I'd like to come back to the, the hostage thing that you referred to earlier. You said mm-hmm. you, I think you said that, or you at least implied that you have been involved in hostage situations. Um, oh, sure. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you approach those situations and specifically how you engage the hostage taker. Well, I've been called to probably hundreds of hostage situations, and very few are actually a hostage situation. When you're a police officer or a sergeant on the street, you'll get a call from the dispatcher, and many, many times what you're responding to isn't what the call is. And it's like, hey, we've got a hostage situation, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, it might be a pissed-off girlfriend with her teenage daughter and the daughter saying, you know, mom's holding me hostage. And it's like, no, she's not. She's being a mom, you know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I remember, uh, you always treat everything, you know, seriously and course, you approach yeah. as tactically as possible and safe as possible. And I remember years ago as a police officer and there's two stories that pop into my head with hostages. Um, we get a call for a guy shooting a gun out of a uh, window of an apartment. It was a four family. There's two units upstairs and two units downstairs. And it's like, oh, God. It was 7.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning. And we, I worked midnight to 8. <laughs> so it's right at the end of your shift. Yep. And myself and one other cop were the only two that were available. And it's like, all right. And we were both one man, which means we were by, by ourselves in our squads. And... Um, what happened was I got a hold of the other officer. His his nickname was Wojo. I'm like, Wojo, hang back. I said, wait for me to get there, and we'll approach together. He said, sure, something, brother. And he's like, he, the guy was a co- comedian. He was so funny. He was he literally could have made a living as a stand-up comedian. He was just <laughs> he was just one of those guys that just made you laugh. He was just he cracked me up, and he hated overtime. And this we knew this was going to be overtime, obviously. So the sergeant that was on the street is like, you know, I'll respond too, but I'm very far away. It's going to take a while. And it's like, okay. So I hear Wojo go 1023, which is code for he's on scene. And I'm like, and he's not where I told him, you know, we'll meet at this spot and we'll walk up and we'll do it safely. Of course, he's not there. I take a peek around the corner. He parked his squad in front of where this guy was supposed to be shooting a gun off. And I'm like, really? Oh, my God. That's not what you do. All I could think of was getting off on time. So <laughs> I, I can hear him. He's in some kind of dialogue with somebody on the second floor. So I slowly go up the stairs, and he looks at me and says, I don't know, is this a clean podcast? Can I swear or not? Um, I, I can I can put a little explicit on, on it, and I do occasionally, okay. so it's fine. Just, just go right, for it. Well, Say it how it is. Okay, so he looks at me and he says, man, this is fucked up. And I'm like, oh, God, what do we have? He says, take a look, brother. And we both have our guns out now, and I take a peek, and here's this grown man. He's It was summertime. He's just wearing a pair of shorts, and he's sweating profusely. He's got a rifle to the head of this 9-year-old kid. 
that's laying in the bed next to him. And this poor little boy is just whimpering. He's scared out of his mind. And I'm like, holy shit. And I look at him, I'm like, dude. And he's like, dude. <laughs> we both look at each other and we're like, oh my God. So I get on the air and I'm like, okay, start sending me a negotiator, send me the sergeant, send me the SWAT team. And we're going to need all these mm, pieces. Mm. You know, with anything like this that you know is going to take a while, you want to get those balls rolling immediately. Because yeah. it's not a snap of the fingers and these people just appear. Yeah. So right away I did that. And Wojo has a dialogue going with this guy and he says, dude, what are you doing? He said, this is stupid. So the guys tell him to F off, F off. And mm. he's just like, dude, and I'm trying to get a clear shot because I'm going to shoot and kill this guy. He's got literally has the barrel pointed at this kid's head. And it's a rifle. And it was just, I could not get a clean shot because I didn't want to risk shooting this kid. But then these are all decisions you have to make in split seconds. Mm. And like, oh, okay. So I'm hoping that we can talk this guy out of, you know, the situation. Then finally, Wojo's like, dude, it's like a quarter to eight. He says, we're not getting out of here on time. And he says, this is bullshit. So he looks at the guy who's got the rifle in the kid's head. He says, dude, enough around. He said, stand up, put your hands behind your back. Let's get this over with, please. He says, I got shit to do today. Dude looks at him. We both look at each other. He drops the rifle, he stands up, he turns around, and he puts his hands behind his back. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Just because my partner didn't want a bunch of overtime. Oh. He convinced him. They say, dude, you know, it's inevitable. You're going to jail today. Let's not make this any worse. I take it this is not this is not advised practice, though, to actually <laughs> do. No, usually not. <laughs> but you know what? Here's the thing. He found a little common ground with this guy. Yeah. He was able to talk to him. You know, we had a good, safe position. You know, we had cover. Mm. And, you know, we had lethal force if we had to use it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's to save either, you know, this poor kid who is literally a hostage or ourselves. If he, if he started pointing the rifle at us, we would have had to have taken him out. But wow. all these things happen literally in seconds. Wow. And there's no playbook. There's no – it's all situational. And it also depends on the experience of the officer, the sergeant, the detective, whoever yeah. that's on the scene. And also their life experiences too. I mean I've worked with guys who were battle-proven Marines who were literally getting shot at. They're asking for help over the air. And it sounded like they were ordering a pizza. They're like, yeah, Squad 53, they're shooting at us. And you can hear the bullets flying. And he's not calm. But, you know, again, he was a hardcore Marine. You know, a lot of, you know, it depends on what your background is. Then I'd have officers that were screaming at the top of their lungs for something that they shouldn't even be excited about. It's like, really? Come on. <laughs> so I'll leave you with one more hostage situation. Mm. And this was, I was at a homicide. <laughs> It's just one of those nights. I was the only supervisor on the street. I was at a homicide. What it was is this woman was getting her ass kicked on a regular basis by her asshole husband. And finally, she had enough. They were in a fight. He was beating her. She grabbed the kitchen knife, and she stabbed him in the chest. It came over as a suicide. And <laughs> to make a, a longer story short, as far as that goes, you know, she was taken downtown 
they interrogated her for hours and she would not go off of her story because she was afraid, you know, she was going to get arrested. Yeah. They pulled up, they literally pulled up in front of the house after being interrogated for like three or four hours. They didn't have enough to arrest her or they didn't want to arrest her. And she started spilling her guts as soon as they pulled out in front of the house. But anyway, so <laughs> to back up, I've got this homicide scene. I've got little kids there. It's chaotic, et cetera, et cetera. Things start calming down. And then a call comes over the air for a hostage situation. Man is front and back door barricaded. He's got he's drinking uh, Jack Daniels whiskey and he's got a big Rambo knife. And he said he's going to cut up his family. I'm like, okay. So I have some officers responding. Now, this was at 3 o'clock in the morning. Again, I was working midnight to 8. It was either 3 or 4 in the morning. There is no SWAT team at that time of night. You have to call and wake them up. It's going to take them an hour to get there. It's going to take at least an hour for a negotiator to show up. So you do the best with what you got. So I, I tear down there. I've got officers in the front and back. We have eyes on this guy. And I've got people, I've got cops with rifles, shotguns, pistols, you know, but nobody could get a real good shot. This guy literally had a bottle of Jack Daniels in one hand and this gigantic Rambo knife explaining how he's going to cut up his family and his wife and two kids are on the couch just bawling and he's just screaming at them. And he's got the front and back doors barricaded with just garbage, furniture, whatever. So, you know, I, again, if there's a resource that you're going to need, that's going to take time to get there. That's one of the first things you do. So I got the, I'm like, okay, we're going to need the SWAT team where I'm going to need a negotiator. They're like, okay, you know, you'll get one when you get one. I'm like, okay, this is the first hostage situation I ever had as a supervisor. And I'm like, okay. And then I called for uh, the fire department to stage a block down in case this guy did start cutting him up or in case we had to shoot this person, I'd have medical attention right there. So I just had them staging. So we started getting a dialogue with this guy. And, yeah, I mean, he was just drunk and who knows what else he was. And he just started gobbling down. The, he had a pill bottle. and he, He's literally just tipping it on, on his head and washing everything down with Jack Daniels. So I'm like, okay. But he started getting groggy. His knees started buckling. And I'm like, okay, this might end really well. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, he's literally overdosing in front of us, but he's not being violent. You know, he was threatening his family, and he's got this gigantic knife. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I've got lethal force. If he would have taken one or two more steps towards his family, we, we were, we'd be forced to shoot and kill him. So I'm waiting and waiting and... He's getting groggier and groggier, and he's kind of getting further and further away from the family. So I'm like, okay, this is good. Any kind of hostage situation, time is your friend unless there's something immediate you have to address. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's as long as you keep that person talking. And again, like I said, 90% of this job is talking. How do you talk to people? So what happens is. Finally, he's starting to stagger, and I'm like, oh, good. He's going to pass out. This is great. I've got, I literally have the fire department a block away. They can treat him. You know, he's going to drop the knife. We can go in, save the family. Everybody wins. So 
he's like going down to one knee and then I don't know why one of my officers just got too excited. He's like, Sarge, he's going to die. And I'm like, no, nah, he won't. We got the fire department right over there. He's not going to die. So he just starts breaking the door down. I'm like, really dude. And I'm like, great. <laughs> this is you one know, of your guys. Is it one of my guys? Yeah. Just got excited. And he starts going through there. I'm like, God, I hope we don't have to shoot this person. Oh, but finally, as we were breaking down, the guy passed up. We got through the door. We got through all this garbage and furniture that he had the door barricaded with. We were able to get in there. We got the family out of there. We got the fire department there. And off to the hospital he went. No muss, no fuss. <laughs> wow. So, so Wendy, here's, here's, your, here's your policeman with 25 years' experience. Is there, what do you want to ask him? him i want to ask him all sorts of things but (laughs) (laughs) we haven't got time on this here podcast and you know i'm just to be honest it's all been very useful really because of all the stuff to do with homicides and things but you've spoken about a lot of cases where things you know you've the police find out who the the killer is straight away you know who the home who has the murderer is but what happens in cases where you know it's not immediately apparent and it may take some weeks and things how does the investigation play out then well you rely on your investigation you know homicides are unique because obviously your victim can't talk to you about what happened Mm -hmm. so you have to rely on the crime scene it all starts the crime scene you know okay you have a body over here you may have some casings over there there might be a knife shoved in this person's chest or their head or whatever you know does all this make sense then you know the experts that are going to look at the blood is there blood spatter okay that could be from some type of um blunt force trauma and is there blood droplets the blood droplets could be from the person who actually did the homicide i had a homicide about three or four months ago it was a stabbing and there was droplets and a lot of time you know, this person was literally fighting for his life and he lost and he injured the person who killed him. And mm-hmm. droplets are, you know, that could come from a broken nose. Yeah. That could come from like a, you know, a cut on a finger or something like that. And sure enough, that was the case. But it starts with a good investigation. It starts yeah. with a clean, workable crime scene where there's physical evidence. You know, you might get a fingerprint. You might get... Um, DNA, but unfortunately DNA doesn't happen overnight like you see on TV where like yeah. five minutes later it's like, here's the DNA of the killer. It's like, <laughs> no, it, it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes it might take weeks. It could take up to a month for a homicide to get the DNA of this person. And that's assuming their per, their DNA is on file. That doesn't all, That's not always the case. Yeah. So um, you rely, like I said before, on the crime scene, any kind of physical evidence you could retrieve from there. And a big thing, too, is any type of witnesses. I mean, do you have a witness? And a witness may not necessarily be somebody that was right there, but they heard something. Maybe they recognize a voice. Um, And, you know, the most opportune, obviously, is somebody who actually saw the homicide. And it's like, yeah, that's Joe who works for Fred. You know, he killed him because they were arguing over he didn't pay him enough money or he owed him money or whatever. Yeah. And then when it comes to a homicide, you also look for the motive. Why would somebody want to kill this person? Mm. Yeah, and usually greed is big, lust, you know, some kind of love triangle, that type of thing, 
greed, money. You know, he owed this person money. You know, he owed yeah. the dope man some money. Um, why him out of, you know, everybody else in the city, why did he get his ticket punched today? Why was he killed? Yeah. You know, so that will come up. And then also we rely on tips. You know, people will call the police and say, hey, you know what? T-Bone was bragging about how he killed, you know, whoever, you know, a couple of nights ago. And sometimes, you know, for the most part, people are good. You know, everybody likes to portray, you know, people in the hood or these bad neighborhoods. Oh, my God. You know, everyone's a criminal. Everyone, you know, not at all. It's the opposite. Most Mm, people want to do the right thing. Most people are good. But as a police officer, you start to get jaded because you don't deal with a lot of good people. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep on reminding yourself that there's a lot of good people out there. And it's like, yeah, I was at a party and I heard this guy bragging about how he killed this person. Thought you might want to know. Or a lot of times (laughs) it's a pissed off girlfriend. It is like, hey, you know what? My boyfriend, who's I caught cheating on me uh, three months ago, said, you know, he shot and killed blah, blah, blah. Or he shot or he had a fight with. And I saw on the news that, you know, I thought it might have something to do with it. Yeah. So be careful about how you treat people. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) and another way we get it, again, with people calling the police, they'll drop a dime. Our parents, especially concerned moms or dads. It's like my son or my daughter is leaving this gangster lifestyle. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he or she did X, Y, or Z. And, you know, somebody's going to retaliate, especially when it comes to gang stuff. And I don't want to see him get hurt. Mm-hmm. So more than one time, a concerned mom has called the police. Or they're just sick of, you know, Junior and his BS. <laughs> you know, he's, he's been living in my basement. He's 32 years old. And he's never come out of the, you know, the only time he comes out of the basement is to do stupid stuff. You know, he's just, exactly he's killing people he's doing whatever so wow. yeah i mean you never know i had a homicide one time where i convinced the guy who convinced this was just one of these it was a horrible homicide this poor lady was like in her 70s or early 70s he beat her to death with a frying pan oh. and then he stabbed her multiple times and it's it's a long story, but you know I'm working midnight. I was working seven night seven till three in the morning, and I didn't get out of there till about nine or ten o'clock in the morning. And this homicide suspect is in the back of the car. And long story short, was he's a family friend. <clears throat> he had almost no criminal history. He's in his forties. He's down on his luck, and this lady let him live with her for an extended period of time, and then finally she's like. You got to get out. You're a freeloader. Time for you to go. He didn't like that, and he killed her. Mm. It was just a fit of rage. Yeah. And he kills her. And I could tell he wasn't like a hardened criminal. I mean, it's horrible to look into the eyes of the deceased, and then you see the guy who killed him. And you know, I'm like, hey, is there anything I could do for you? And he was kind of taken aback that I was being nice to him. And he's like, Dude, if I could get a McDonald's big breakfast, I'll tell these detectives anything. I'm like, really? <laughs> officer, I gave this officer five bucks. Go get him a McDonald's big breakfast. 
So when he was being interrogated, he was eating his breakfast and he told the, the detective everything. Wow. Oh my goodness. So like I said before, it's all how you treat people, it's how it's all mm. how you talk to people. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um so Patrick, what have we missed out? What's the what's the critical thing that, that I should we should have asked you, if anything? And you know what, I think we covered a lot of the bases, you know. As far as big mistakes, rank is wrong. Mm. Most of what you see on TV or you see in movies is completely wrong. (laughs) 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 But it is fun. And what I tell authors, because I consult with authors and screenwriters, and like, it's your story. It doesn't have to be 100% police accurate, but you should know what true north is on the compass if you're going way off course. Yeah, you know, yeah. you should know that. Okay, maybe I could get away with this in a story because it's really all about the story. And what I see a lot too is when they're writing a story and their main character is either a detective or a police officer or a sergeant or who knows what, they tend to forget the idea that these people, these officers or detectives or whatever, are people, and they have real people problems just like everybody else, mm. you know, a lot of times they're just kind of typecasted either into this real stoic, you know, stern face, no sense of humor, you know, blah, all business, kind of Joe Friday from Dragnet kind of guy. Or it's the exact opposite where they're just completely out of control, you know, renegade detective that's, you know, his boss says, hey, you have to do this, and he runs off and does the exact opposite and, you know, yeah. No, it, none of that really. That that doesn't happen. So, mm. you know, you have to be realistic with what you got, and but you do have some artistic license, mm. and you sure. sh- but you should know how far to take that. Mm. I think that's probably one of the key giveaways takeaways from this. Yeah. And one more thing that I'll add is police officer um, shootings where an officer is forced to shoot and kill somebody, more than 90% of the time, it's going to be the cop that does that. Police officers or a sergeant, that somebody who works on the street, are the ones who take the most risk. They're hurt the most. They're killed the most. They're the ones who have the highest liability. They're sued the most. You know, in TV, books, movies, you know, it's always the detective. It's quite the opposite. Not, I'm not saying that a detective has never shot someone, especially if they're in a specialty unit, like an anti-gang unit or something like that, but mm-hmm. most of them are not. You know, It's the police officer or the sergeant on the street that's doing the actual work. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And then when something like that occurs, you're going to be sitting behind a desk for at least six months, maybe a year. You know, what you see or what you read is, you know, this officer or this detective or whoever is involved in this police officer related shooting where they're forced to shoot and kill somebody. And next day or later on that shift, they're back out on the street, you know, running and gunning. And it's like, no, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, that's now, interesting. Yeah. You, know, you have to be, um, you could be more creative maybe and say, you know, hey, six months had passed by and, you know, maybe you could give your main character a drinking problem. Maybe you could give him some uh, marital problems, maybe problems with his kids. Because of the stress from the shooting, you could do that. You know, there's all types of different avenues you could take. Or 
you say six months later, you know, it's your story. You can fast forward. But as long as you acknowledge that fact, that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves is just, you know, this guy, this officer, this detective, usually a detective in the movies, shoots and kills somebody, and they're out having coffee and donuts a couple hours later. And I'm like, really? That, <laughs> it's, it's not, not even close to reality. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, we've, we've obviously covered a lot of, a whole bunch of stuff in this conversation, Patrick. Um, but some people listening to this may want to have more permanent record or somewhere they can go to maybe to check the stuff out that we've said and maybe to answer some other questions. So I understand you've actually written a lot of this up in a book. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and what the kind of thing that's in it that people can access and learn about? Absolutely. Uh, The first book is called Cops and Writers from the Academy to the Street. This is where I take you, the author or screenwriter, from the beginning of a police career and I will show you exactly you know what it takes why does somebody want to become a police officer how do they do it how does this all work so that's what this book is all about i have a second book that actually just went off to the editor and that's going to be crime scenes and investigations it's also the cops and writers um but the first book you know i do go into a little bit about policing in america and the difference between you know sheriff's departments police departments and I do go into a little bit of like the feds, you know, like the FBI, that type sure. of thing. And I also, you know, even, you know, the communication center, the 911 center, you know, what happens there. I go through rank structure, police academy, uh, patrol, working conditions, uh, equipment. What is, it, what is it really like being on the street? And I even have a uh, chapter devoted to cop humor. All right. <laughs> Patrick, may I ask, what's your writing name? Patrick O'Donnell. Patrick J. Pat- O'Donnell. O'Donnell. Yes. O- Patrick J. O'Donnell. Patrick J. O'Donnell. A good Irish name. It's <laughs> isn't it? Very, very Irish. Yes. Um, so that's the first book. Then the second book, I go a little deeper into the weeds of investigations. You know, who does what at a crime scene? What are we looking for at a crime scene? It, yeah. And what makes my book a little unique is... I've done all these things. Mm. You know, it's not, and I've done my due diligence. I have spoken to detectives, investigators from the medical examiner's office, forensic people from all over the country. But I have literally done almost all these things myself personally. I've been involved in all these things personally, you know, multiple times. Mm. So I actually do have some of these stories in the books. And, you know, you could write, it's, it's a reference guide. For writers, for authors and screenwriters, but you know it's funny because about a, two weeks ago, I spoke with a uh, college class at university, an intro to criminology class, and the professor is going to use my books as a textbook because wow. he said what he has now has absolutely no examples of any of these things. And he says you have all kinds of examples. That's what makes it interesting. Brilliant. So I'm happy about that. So that one that's out now, Patrick, is Cops and Writers from the Academy to the Street. And that yes, is, that's out there right now. The other one that you mentioned, Crime Scenes and Investigations, that's, that's a work in progress, is it? That, that's not out yet. Is that correct? Yeah, it's at the editor right now. I've written it. Okay. So I, I'm working on the blurb. I'm working on 
the cover, all that. I'm hoping I'll have that published by the end of this month, if not by the middle of November. Okay. Oh, well, that's fine. Um, so that's cool. So uh, we're recording this at the beginning of October. Um, and so anybody listening to this kind of mid-late November 2019 onwards, that second book, Crime Scenes and Investigations, should be out there. So you can go and check that one out as well. So, so far, I am exclusive to Amazon, but I'll probably change that. And, sure. You know, go sure. Wide. But for now, I am Amazon exclusive. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, Patrick and Wendy, thank you very much for your time. It's been um, a pleasure to talk to you, Patrick, and to kind of hear it from the sharp end, as it were, as you say, 25 years of experience <laughs> with all of this craziness. Um, and uh, loads of things there, I think, for um, for everybody who's interested in, the, in writing in that genre to think about. Um, Wendy, is there anything you want to say before we before we go at all? No, just thank you very much, Patrick. I've bought your book already, so you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love uh, I love all of your accents, by the way. I, <laughs> of course, mine is mine is better than Andy's because mine is yeah. Scottish. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm with you on that one. Nothing against you, Andy, but I will. No, 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 you. that's fine. Um, I, I, when I talk to people like in my family about Wendy, I just say I, I just refer to her as Scottish Wendy. Everybody yeah. knows. <laughs> Everybody knows. Or Wendy from Dundee. She's very proud of the fact she's from Dundee, aren't you, Wendy, I think, as well. I am very proud of the fact I'm <laughs> Dundee. If you ever want to come over, Patrick, you're more than welcome. Uh, now, you know what? I may. You never know. I may take you up on that. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to say uh, I do have a Facebook group called Cops and Writers. Okay. So okay, you can find cool. me on Facebook. And I, I do have a website, you know, www.copsandwriters.com, all no spaces, just C-O-P-S and writers.com. And there, I do have a couple of other um, uh, resources I think your um, listeners would appreciate. Okay, yeah, please do mention them, yeah. Yeah, um, there's a Facebook group called Legal Fiction, and that is more about the legal, the um, criminal justice system, where there's prosecutors and defense attorneys okay. that yeah. are members, and people, you know, kind of throw out questions that way i think they would appreciate that also there's a facebook group called trauma fiction and that is a group of there's police officers uh law enforcement but there's also um people in the medical field all right okay okay if you stabbed a person here what are the chances you know they would die or how long would it take or what kind of injury would that cause that kind of thing um I'm a member of 20 books to 50K. I'm a big fan, of course. I will be speaking in November. We have our 20 books to 50K conference in Las Vegas. So I will be giving, um, I'll be the moderator for a law enforcement panel for really? that. So if any, any of your listeners are there, come say hi to me. Come and say hello to Patrick. Cool. And I also do consult with authors and screenwriters on their crime fiction so i do offer that service also so how do people contact you if they if they're interested in that service patrick they could go directly through my website that's www.copsandwriters.com they can email me at sarge s-a-r-g-e at copsandwriters.com or you can just direct message me on facebook i check my facebook page group every day that's the uh cops and writers group in facebook okay 
Yeah, and thank you very much, you and Wendy. I, I appreciate the talk. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking to you guys. Yeah, it's, it's uh, as I said, fun but gruesome, or gruesome but fun. Whichever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you ever want me on again, I'd be more than happy. Like I said in my email, I time flies when you start talking about this. There's a yeah. lot of rabbits we can go down. Yeah. yeah, well, and you may have a little bit more time next year, I guess, when, and you won't say... Once you've once you've served your time, as it were, on the You're, force, <laughs> <laughs> you are absolutely correct. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much, both of you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. <laughs>